I could really feel that I loved Israel and I wanted Israel to be my home and one day I would live here. And I figured that this happening to me the way it did was Hashem's way of uprooting me from Baltimore so I was able to move. And if I wasn't going to be able to go to physical therapy school, it was my time to come to Israel. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. When we look at the state of Israel, we can sometimes be overwhelmed with how incredible, miraculous, and wonderful it is, while simultaneously being completely flustered at how difficult the bureaucracy and other aspects of life are experienced. And very few people have experienced this as acutely as David ben Moshe. David's story is fascinating. He was in federal prison in the United States for drug distribution and unlicensed dealing of firearms. After he was released early for good behavior and then sent to a halfway house, he became deeply involved in Baltimore's Orthodox Jewish community and eventually converted to Judaism and moved to Israel. But despite the fact that it recognized his conversion as valid, he even married in Israel under the auspices of the Rabbanut, the Israeli Ministry of the Interior, the Misrata Pnim, has not yet allowed him to make Aliyah because, they say, of his criminal past. His story is equal parts fascinating, disturbing, and inspiring, and we'll get to it in just a moment. First, let me remind you to please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Also, go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. Just search for The Orthodox Conundrum, give it between zero and five stars, and write a sentence or two. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are available only to subscribers. We're adding new features to Patreon all the time, including, coming up very soon, AMA, Ask Me Anything. You'll also be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, halakhically committed, and honest orthodoxy. So make sure you sign up to Patreon right away. It's just a few bucks a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining our team on Jewish Coffeehouse. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can help you start. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in a single day or, alternatively, record, relax, and let us do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work for you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and sign up for a free 30-minute consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. David Ben Moshe is a writer, speaker, and fitness coach. He writes about social justice, fitness, and Israel, and he's currently working on a memoir of his journey from federal prison to Israel. I had the opportunity to talk to David about how he first became interested in Judaism, his attempted Aliyah experience, his love for the land and people of Israel, his life before converting, the problems of cancel culture, and much more. 
David Ben Moshe, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. I want to start off with something that I read in your June 29th article in Newsweek, which is available online. You said that you spent two years in prison. So that's a good way to open up our conversation. Can you tell me the story? (laughs) What was it and on what charge and when did that happen? So what happened was after I left high school, I went to college. And in college, I had a very terrible experience for a variety of reasons and ended up dropping out. And after dropping out, I had to find a way to support myself. I wasn't really speaking in terms of my parents. We didn't get along for also a variety of reasons. And with no college degree, no real work experience, figuring out how to support myself, drugs turned out to be the easiest thing. Uh, One of the things that happens when you're black and in college is people just ask you to buy drugs because they assume that you know where to find drugs. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And when you go to certain areas of cities, people will just offer to sell you drugs because you're black and they feel inherently they can trust you. So it's easy to buy them and easy to sell them. I put two and two together and started selling drugs, which eventually got me into other drugs, got me into some uh, weapons, guns, and I ended up in federal prison for that. And you spent two years then in prison, correct? Yeah, to, to be exact, I was sentenced to 30 months, mm-hmm. but then I was released early for good behavior and served the end of my time in a halfway house in Baltimore, Maryland. And you weren't Jewish at that time, is that right? No, I was not Jewish. So how did you get interested in Judaism? So it comes back to ending up in federal prison. So one day in prison, I'm in the library and the compound gets locked down. And during a lockdown, wherever you are, you're stuck there until the lockdown ends and you don't know how long it's going to be, much like we all live through with Corona. And so during this particular lockdown, which is a very long time, time is passing, we're all getting restless. I'm like walking around, looking around, everyone else is getting restless. And there's one guy who's sitting quietly, times doesn't seem to bother him, he just keeps on studying. And I walk by him a few times and see the book he's reading is in a language I understand. And after a few hours, I eventually ask him what he's reading. He tells me that he's reading the Bible and the language is Hebrew. And then I notice something on the page. And noticing this thing calls me to ask a question. And this question ended up changing my life forever. What was that? What I noticed was on the bottom of the page were a bunch of small text boxes. So I ask him, like, what's with all the boxes at the bottom of the page? And he explained to me the idea of Parshanut. Said, you know, there are different people explaining the verses that are here. You know, this person says it means this. This person says it means this. This guy comes way after this guy. He says he's completely wrong. It must mean this. And then learning that that was a normal Jewish way of looking at a holy text blew my mind because I come from fundamentalist Christianity and the idea that you would have like a holy religious book and you'd want to have multiple different opinions and interpretations and hold on to them and study them all really just blew my mind because I think of religion and holy text. I was like, oh, it's like you believe it this way or you go to hell. And this was like a whole new way of interpreting it. And that kind of started me on this path of studying what is Judaism, how it's practiced. And eventually I came to the conclusion that like this makes a lot of sense and this is for me. 
that's inspiring. And at the same time, it raises some questions. This was a Hebrew book. You're in the prison library. How did you go from there to start studying it? Was it while you were still in prison or was it when you left prison? So in prison, I still studied. I got a hold of some books about it and talked to some inmates who practiced different forms of Judaism. And from that studying that I did inside, I decided that it's what I wanted to do. And I decided that one day I wanted to be an Orthodox Jew. And when I was released to the halfway house, so when you get to the halfway house, the first thing that happens is they lock you down for a week because you're new. And that's how they show you that like, oh, you know, you're still halfway in prison, not halfway out of prison. You write about that in one of your blogs I saw. Yeah. Actually, my first official trip out of the halfway house, so the first place I went with any freedom, was to a synagogue in Baltimore called B'nai Israel, which became my spiritual home. It's where I did my Orthodox inversion. I'm still very close to the community there. Every time I go back to the States, I make sure to stop in. And that's where I did like my full Orthodox conversion. So after you got out of prison, having gone to B'nai Israel and so on and so forth, tell me a little bit more about your Jewish journey. How did it progress? Slowly. Mm-hmm. Did you find resistance from the community? Is that why? Or was it slowly on your side? So Slowly on my side. So in addition to the Jewish journey, I'd also balance that with getting my life back together, finding work, being able to be self-sufficient, all those things that they don't really help you with while you're inside prison and become much, much harder once you get out of prison. My entire Orthodox conversion took uh, four or five years. Mm -hmm. But during that time, I came to services regularly. I got very involved in not only the Orthodox community, but also with some of the reform community in the area and just spent a lot of time at Jewish events with Jewish people, got more involved with the community, um, which was very loving and accepting from day one, all of it in Baltimore. I wanted to ask you about that. Was the community, like they were willing to accept you given your color, given your background? There wasn't much resistance there? Zero. At my synagogue I went to in Baltimore, like the, I remember the first time I went there. So I get there early and there's like a guy who comes I'm like, they're early. The guy comes to unlock the door. His name is, he just opens the door. Like, it was even like a while before anyone asked if, like, I was Jewish. Like, it was just assumed, like, oh, you come to the synagogue. You must just be Jewish. I was just accepted the community. So, like, I asked the rabbi that like, I wanted to convert. And then it got found that I wasn't, like, quite Jewish. And they were just accepting and loving from day one. That's amazing. At the same time, four or five years is a long time. Were you discouraged or the movement forward? Was it? inexorable on your part? What kept you going and just made you say, I, I just can't handle this. This is simply taking too long, despite the fact that the community was welcoming and loving. The entire time, the rabbi was very clear that like it could go faster. But the rabbi told me it's like, a year is about the minimum you can expect for this process to take. It can take longer than that. It's all about the pace that you want to push it. And I'm not going to rush you, but like you have to meet these standards, learn these things, observe these commandments for this amount of time before you get to the end in the bait den. And there's no way around that. How did that transition from being in Baltimore, part of the Orthodox community and the wider Jewish community to moving to Israel? What year was that and how did that happen? So that was 2017. So actually going back to the Newsweek article I recently published, what had happened was I'd gotten into physical therapy grad school and I had an acceptance letter 
I accepted the acceptance. I thought I was going. I closed down. At the time, I was running my own small business, a personal training studio. I had a lease of a place I was renting in the city. I ended my lease, closed down my business, thought I was going to physical therapy school. And then after my acceptance, much later, they declared me ineligible to register for classes. So kind of I had prepared to move. And during the time that I was waiting for them to answer, because they told me it would take them about a week to make a decision, ended up taking them you know, three months, and I've got no rights because I'm a criminal. Hmm. And during that time, I was thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. A few years earlier, I'd done a birthright trip. And on the birthright trip, I could really feel that I loved Israel and I wanted Israel to be my home and one day I would live here. And I figured that this happening to me the way it did was Hashem's way of uprooting me from Baltimore so I was able to move. And if I wasn't going to be able to go to physical therapy school, it was my time to come to Israel. And that was in 2017? Yeah. I spoke to my rabbi about, you know, wanting to make Aliyah. Rabbi's like, great, that's awesome. Before you do that, I think you should go spend a few months on like a pilot trip unstructured because birthright can be kind of an intense experience. Like just go for two months, study a little bit, like meet the people, be unstructured. This is a great place that you would love called Mahon Pardes. Study there in the summer program and see what it's like before you make a decision. Came to study in the summer program love studying, ended up getting a scholarship and a fellowship to stay for the year program. And also during that summer session, I met a very nice girl who I started dating and decided that we should like stay in and keep the relationship going. <laughs> and she's your wife today? Yep. She's my wife today. And we have two wonderful kids. Now, I know your situation in Israel has been basically crazy. And I'll get to that in just a minute because I do want to discuss that as well. Before we get there, when you came to Israel, what was it like? How was that experience? Was it what you hoped it would be? Was it better? Was it worse? And I'm not speaking about your immigration status, because we will talk about that. (laughs) I mean, just the social experience of being here, the religious experience of being here. Even better than I expected. Israel's a special place. Like, for all of you who are listening to this who have never been to Israel, you have to, like, really come, and when you get off the airplane, you'll just realize it's different. It's certainly not perfect. There are some things in Israel that just don't function. There's some people who are not always the nicest, and it's culturally very different than America, especially from like a politeness point of view. That's for sure. Yeah. But the people, the way I like to talk about the difference between Israel and America is in America everyone is much nicer, but in Israel, they're much friendlier. Hmm. And what I mean by that is like, yeah, you know, in, Amer- yeah. in America, if you meet someone, they're going to be very polite and nice and ask you how you're doing. And probably they're like, oh yeah, you know, I'd like to you know, hang out again with you later. Like we can become friends. And then like, you never end up talking to them and it doesn't like feel real. It feels like things they just kind of say. In Israel, you meet someone, you might be like butt heads, have like an argument with them. At the end, they might just transition from screaming to like, oh, then they invite you over to come to my house and you'll have a meal. And what they mean by that is like, from that moment on, show up, 
knock on their door, they'll open it, they'll be like, I remember you, they'll welcome you in. They'll be like, when someone says like, I want you to come to my house in Israel, they mean you have an open invitation to come visit them indefinitely. And when you come, you just walk them. So do that in America, they'll be like, um, what are you doing at my What are you door? doing here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I definitely understand that. Now, I'm glad you prefaced it by saying all these wonderful things about Israel and saying that Israel is different with a capital D is certainly a good description. <laughs> but I want to talk about something which is unfortunate, which is your experience with the Misrata Pneem, the interior ministry. David, you are a Jew. You wanted to make Aliyah, and they have been giving you all sorts of problems with immigration, which I saw in a couple of articles in the Jerusalem Post, an opinion piece and another article. So what's going on with that? I, first of all, I think it's a little better now, but it still isn't quite where it should be. Can you tell me that yeah. story? What's going on with that? Yeah. So after I finished my year of studying, I applied for Aliyah. And initially, they just did not answer my application. And in fact, during that time, I ended up getting married in Israel through the revenue to my wife. And there was a nine months until they answered. What they said was the reason it took them so long to answer was because they were investigating my criminal record, which we have them saying on record in a letter to Michael Oren that when he requested an update on my status, he was the only one who could get an answer. Everyone else, they just ignored. He was helping you out. Michael Oren was helping you. Yeah. It turns out we have some mutual friends. I mean, ah, okay. So once they finally did answer about a month later, what the response said was that my application was denied because my conversion was unacceptable. Now, hang on. You got married through the Rabbanut. Let's make that yes. clear. Yeah. Usually we talk about the Rabbanut being whatever, okay? <laughs> Listeners to this podcast know that I've stated some opinions about it in the past. The Rabbanut itself, obviously, by allowing you to get married in Israel— gave the seal of approval to your conversion. So why is the Ministry of Interior giving a hard time? It doesn't make any sense. And it went on to say that I've got the right to appeal within 28 days, and then said, oh, but you can, and the wording here is very important, you can apply for status based on your relationship. What does that now, mean? So what we thought that meant was that for some reason they didn't want to recognize my conversion and give me citizenship and they wanted me to apply for a visa through being married to an israeli citizen okay now so we still we filed an appeal within the time frame that was required and since at this time i had no visa so i couldn't stay in the country legally and I couldn't work to support my family, and we were expecting our first child in three months, we decided to apply to get a visa based on my marriage to an Israeli citizen so I could get a visa to stay in the country and work, which would make things much easier. When we applied for that, we were denied because what we were told by the Ministry of the Interior was that for the purpose of getting status in the country, you can only apply with a civil marriage. Civil marriages do not exist in the state of Israel. You have a religious marriage to the rabbinute. It is unacceptable here, but don't worry, you just made a mistake because this is proof you're Jewish, you can just go make Aliyah. It sounds like this crazy cycle going back and forth. Yes. <laughs> Unless I'm misunderstanding something. It's like circle, circle, circle. So because you got married through the rabbinute, 
you now have to go get a civil marriage. It, it whatever. It's very strange. Yeah, yeah. And, and then that. Is I apologize for my confusion, but I'm sure you felt the same way. No, everyone is confused. So then what happened was because we couldn't do it through the marriage, we started looking into it. And then we got the Jewish agency involved because initially the Jewish agency said, we can't help you. We do nothing that's anything to do with anyone with a criminal record. You can only deal with the Ministry of the Interior. But now that you have, you know, this rejection letter that officially says the problem is your conversion, we can deal with the ministry and help you out. So they started doing their behind the scenes things. And eventually what they got was a visa for me to stay in the country based on being in an unmarried relationship with an Israeli citizen. Actually I had to like write out a document saying I'm receiving this visa based on being in an unmarried relationship with an Israeli citizen to get that visa. Even and though you're married under Israeli law yes. in Israel. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. After I got that, the Jewish agent said, "Like, okay, now we'll work on getting them to, you know, accept you into full citizenship." And when they started doing that, they got stuck. And what they said was that the Ministry of the Interior told them that my conversion was fine. The problem was my criminal record, and therefore they couldn't help me. So I told them, like, if that's true, why do I have this official document from the Ministry of the Interior that explicitly states? The problem is my conversion. And when they went to check on that, the answer they got was because your case is sensitive because of your criminal record, they can't give us any more information. They can only give the information directly to you. So I said, great. Are they going to give me another letter? Do I get to talk to them? To which I got, no, they will not write you another letter and they will not meet with you to tell you anything else. I'm just dumbfounded because it sounds everything here sounds so absurdist. It's just yeah. ridiculous. Didn't you somehow get a civil marriage in the United States, perhaps, after so this? That comes soon. <laughs> so then time starts passing. So they have 45 days to answer the appeal under law. We didn't actually get an answer to that appeal for about a year and a half. They just ignored it in all my requests. We also at one point went to the ombudsman. And when the ombudsman requested the answer, they ignored the ombudsman too. And the ombudsman's office told us, like, I don't know what you want us to do. Like they didn't answer our request. <laughs> so then since we're making slow progress on this, they won't answer about like we told them, okay, I'm married through the revenue. I've got all this proof of my Jewish status, way more than required by law. They wouldn't answer anything. So we said like, okay, if we can get a better visa, if they consider us married, then we'll go abroad and get married. My wife is a dual citizen. She was actually born in the States, but came to Israel when she was five. Mm -hmm. And then with the civil marriage, we can get a better visa, get me a two, get me national health care, or we continue to fight for my full citizenship status. So we flew abroad, got a civil marriage in the US, came back. When we went to the office to change from being in an unmarried relationship to a married relationship with a civil marriage. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do it. What was the problem this time? So now the problem was we were married in Israel under Israeli law in a legally binding Israeli marriage. So my wife was registered as married. But since I did not have citizenship, 
and they put me on a visa based on being in an unmarried relationship with an Israeli citizen, they couldn't now put me in with the new marriage as married to her because she was already in the system as married to me. So you're basically divided into two people. There's the one who's married to your <laughs> wife, your wife who's married to somebody else who's also you, but the system looked at it like that. Yes. Okay. And then this finally, unfortunately, the horror stories at the Ministry of the Interior are so common, they're not newsworthy. Until this point where I finally crossed over to so ridiculous, we got the Jerusalem Post to cover it and a um, video segment on Khan. And after the Jerusalem Post article came out, they finally said, okay, we are willing to recognize your conversion is valid, which is convenient for them because since my conversion was valid, I could get a better visa, which means that I need a visa to be here under my wife, which made their marriage dilemma magically disappear. Mm-hmm. At which point now, even though I'd been in the country for over three years with no incident, and I knew the first nine months they spent investigating my criminal record, they said, but now because of the criminal record, we need to put you on a trial period. And at the end of the trial period, we will reevaluate whether or not you can get citizenship. And when did that happen, this trial period? When did it begin? It began in January this year. So that means, at least in theory, in three more months, you can apply again for Aliyah to get full citizenship. Uh, So it's not I apply again. It's they review my record at the end of the trial period, and they refuse to clarify what the length of the trial period is. I thought it was nine months. No. So nine months was the initial investigation to my criminal record that happened at the beginning of the process. Uh So, so, So now I'm on a trial period of unknown length. My lawyers assume that because my visa is a year long, the trial period is linked to the visa, Mm -hmm. but they wouldn't answer whether or not that is true. All they would tell us the Ministry of the Interior is that your trial period will be as long as it needs to be. We just had an election a few months ago. We now have a new government, and for the first time in years, there is a new head of the Interior Ministry, a different political party. Do you think that will affect your case positively, or is this all going on deep in the bowels of the bureaucracy and independent of who's in charge at the top? There is no way to know. We always get conflicting information from the ministry. We are very hopeful that with this new government and new change, and then wanting to right some of the wrongs of the previous government, that the new minister of the interior, she'll see my case and just grant me citizenship since I believe that I deserve citizenship as any Jew in the world. So there are certain exceptions that a Jew does not get to the state of Israel. And if I'm considered to endanger public welfare is the phrase I believe they use. And I do not believe I endanger public welfare. I've been nothing but an asset to the state of Israel. And it's been quite a long time. So we're hoping to get a quick response somehow, but getting quick anything in this country is very hard to do. Well, just before we go on to the next topic I want to discuss, let me at least congratulate you for the fact that we say that Eretz Yisrael Niknepi Surim, the land of Israel, is acquired through tribulations. Nowadays, most Jews don't have such a hard time getting here, but you do. So at least 
<laughs> it's very, very admirable how much your love for Israel is causing you to fight for this as opposed to simply giving up. I think it's very impressive. I want to talk about another topic, and specifically one which we spoke about earlier, go a little bit more in depth, that Newsweek article. I'll first talk about what you said. You said regarding that acceptance to the, I believe it was the University of Florida for a physical therapy Correct, degree. Correct, the University of Florida. You had a 4.0 GPA. You had recommendations from people like an assistant attorney general, police, rabbi. You had done community service. You would run a business. And after having been accepted to the program, this is what you said, I accepted the offer and was exuberant for the next stage of my journey. I honestly believed that the person who I had become outweighed my past mistake. I had paid my debt to society. I had come a long way from the halfway house with no money, no food, and no hope. I was living proof that it was possible for a black man to advance despite a felony conviction. I could give hope to other black men struggling to become productive members of society. And then that hope was stolen. After accepting me, the university reconsidered, deeming me, quote, ineligible for admission. I tried to fight back, but it was to no avail. And now I'm going to continue with something else that you wrote. If you are a liberal, you will feel angry reading my story. There's a new awareness about the injustices of our criminal justice system. And yet, even while the culture has come to realize how important second chances are, we are also currently living through a wave of recriminations in the form of cancellations, people losing their livelihoods over social crimes and misdemeanors. And often those doing the canceling are the very people who might feel the angriest about my story. When I read that, I was kind of floored. I really hadn't thought of the hypocrisy that you point out over here. So this is my question for you, David. How do you think that society should deal with what you call social crimes and misdemeanors? If we can't cancel people, and I certainly do not agree with cancel culture, what should be done? Should they be ignored? I think the first thing is we can't look at it so black and white. I think one of the things that has turned cancel culture into a toxic phenomena is the inability to see shades of gray. What you do and the punishment that you get for it need to be appropriate. And a lot of what we see in cancel culture are people who didn't even do anything wrong who are suffering these just terrible repercussions. There is, I you know the story of Holy Land, the Hamas place? Okay. So that's a Palestinian immigrant to the United States who started a Hamas business that became like a very big, successful local smart, small business. His daughter, when she was, I believe, 14, put out some blatantly racist, completely unacceptable tweets that were up for a short period of time, and then she deleted. I believe that was in 2016. And then in 2019, they were discovered, and people started calling for like, oh, like you see what his daughter said, this is unacceptable. He needs to fire his daughter. He's obviously a racist and they put a lot of pressure on him. He ended up firing his daughter from the small business. But then they continued protesting his business because they said that he must be a racist, even though he employed minorities, he'd given to many charities that helped disengage people. He seems like a 
upstanding member of the community and they he lost a bunch of national contracts and they continued protesting and to this day there's still people calling for him to be shut down completely he didn't even actually do anything this is collective punishment they're right. punishing him for his daughter's tweets that his she, daughter whom he fired yeah she apologized for like she apologized for what she did her maybe going to the point where he has to fire her and then she has to make her own way in the world without that that could be argued as appropriate but then why doesn't it end there why do they keep on pushing or then there's the recent case of the lead singer from Mumford and Sons who didn't even really do anything inappropriate he tweeted that he enjoyed a book that was critical of Antifa and it was just a critical of a far left movement that he had reported on personally. And because he tweeted out a positive review of this book, he got just an avalanche of people calling for him that he must be a fascist because he, you know, put out a positive review of a book that looks to just report on what's really happening at this organization that calls themselves the anti-fascist. Mm-hmm. Like something like that, like what type of repercussion doesn't even need repercussions? It's and, freedom of speech has basically gone down the drain. To say you have opinions yeah. that don't fall into somebody's that someone doesn't agree with, that's not a crime. You can disagree. Yeah. There can be dialogue. Yeah, and I think again, going back into why I fell in love with Judaism, that's one of the things we hold dear that is so important that really spoke to me. The idea of multivocal interpretation. Yeah. And it's become more of a obvious play for one side to gain power that they are willing to use in instances where it's to their benefit and other instances they choose to ignore. My example of that was the recent politics in the United States where you had the Brett Kavanaugh being appointed to the Supreme Justice case. Mm-hmm. Kind of the voices from the left were, what he did is unacceptable. We have to believe all women. And because this accuser has come forth, he cannot possibly have this post. Now, those same voices were often silent when the allegations against Joe Biden came out. If you want to live by the phrase, believe all women, you can't only believe all women when they accuse Republicans, you have to believe all women. And even a phrase as strongly as that, I'm very critical of, because that's assuming that no one would ever lie. I'm not saying that we've done a good job of stopping sexual harassment And our systems, I believe, are very much skewed in favor of the male and often disadvantages the female. But you can't just put and be like, oh, any woman who ever accuses anyone of sexual assault must be correct. That's the same as saying, oh, you've now lost the right to be innocent until you're proven guilty, which is one of our fundamental rights, at least in America, that makes the system fair and gives you a chance when things happen outside of your control. 
You talk about this form of hypocrisy, that the same people who are at the forefront and the vanguard of cancel culture are also the people who would be angriest about your own situation. Do you have any idea where that hypocrisy comes from, why they don't recognize it as hypocrisy? I think a lot of them not recognizing it as hypocrisy comes back to this black and white ideal that's kind of seeped into the way many people look at the world. If you look at it like we are on the side of good and they are on the side of evil, it's now easy to justify anything you do to them and defend anything that easily falls into your belief system. So they can't, because they see them as pure evil, they can't see that punishing them for ever and never giving the chance to you know do chuva is fair because they've got to protect people when really it's just disenfranchising a whole nother class of people which is not how we're going to make the world a better place so how do we re- redirect that energy effectively to deal with these problems without canceling people who've done something wrong how do we find that correct balance that mm. allows us to on the one hand, acknowledge when something is not right, but on the other hand, allow people to do tshuva? I think the first step is for people to not discharge their critical thinking and responsibility to the group dynamic. I like to use the example of people who are critical of Israel. When people say a lot of the critical things about Israel that many of us believe are anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic, they've simply not done any of the research themselves. They're repeating what they've heard from authority figures. You have to look at it from, if you're not willing to do the research and the critical thinking yourself, and you discharge that to the group, you just repeat what the group's saying, especially if the group has authority figures. Think about what a 18-year-old kid in college who doesn't know much about Israel thinks when a professor with a PhD tells them, in Israel, it is a white colonial project where they're committing a genocide against indigenous people. Like, should that person not go do the research themselves? A credible source has said that. When they repeat that, that's completely logical. It's like, I can't prove that the earth is revolving around the sun. I've just discharged that to the scientific minds and trust and believe it. Now, I believe it is provable, but what's happening in a political discourse is things that aren't science, that are much more opinion-based. We have pit sides and camps that are pitting against each other. Mm-hmm. And now we just want to hold the line to make people in our group happy while attacking the group instead of seeing what specific issues really speak to our values, what we believe in. At this point, obviously, uh, we've talked about a lot of things that are very difficult to hear. It sounds at the same time like you're a hopeful person by virtue of the fact that you've allowed yourself to go through some of these processes without giving up your hope in Aliyah, your hope for the future. So what are your hopes for the future? What are your expectations for the future as you look at things right now? 
Uh, for me personally, for Israel, for the world, for everything, large, for you, yeah. for, for you personally, for the Jewish people, for Israel, and for the world. How's that? Yeah. yeah. Well, for me personally, I'm very hopeful that I will get Aliyah. I will figure out how to get this move to Beersheba going, and that my I'll keep on loving my wife, and Bezrat Hashem will bring more wonderful children into the world. Amen. Sounds good to me. David yeah. Moshe, thank you very much for joining me today. I do hope with this new government in place, and of course none of us know what's going to happen, but hopefully with this new government in place, it will allow your aliyah to move forward yeah. successfully and smoothly. And hopefully Israel can live in peace and be accepted, and there can not just be peace in Israel. Whenever I talk to people about the Middle East conflict, I have to remind them that the primary conflict in the Middle East is not the Israelis versus the Palestinians. Like there's a terrible civil war in Yemen, there's Syria, there's the Iran, Saudi Arabia, kind of proxy combat. There's like a lot of war and destruction and may peace come to the region and to the entire world, especially we talk about human rights abuses. I've been reading a lot more about North Korea and China and just what's going on there. And I think one of the biggest moral things that we're gonna see or that we won't see because it'll be in the future that we'll be judged on is what we allowed happen over there that seems like we have pretty good knowledge is happening. Thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Remember to go to jewishcoffeehouse.com for lots of great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chumat Nashim, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. You can also find my blog, The Scott Conversation, there. Please also share this podcast so we can get the word out about the Orthodox conundrum to an even bigger audience. And please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron by going to our Patreon page. The link is in the description of this podcast. You can get extra episodes, articles, merch, and more while also supporting our work. So please check it out today. I'm Scott Kahn, and this has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. <laughs>